Section 10 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blake Butler. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosader Johnson, and John Rudd. Fall of Troy, B.C. 1184, by George Grote, Part 1. The Siege of Troy is an event not to be reckoned as history, although Herodotus, the father of history, speaks of it as such, and it would be quite impossible to understand the history and character of the Greek people without a study of the Iliad and Odyssey poems attributed to a blind bard of Sio's Isle, immortal Homer. The campaign of the Greek heroes in Asia is to be referred to a hazy point in the past when Europe was just beginning to have an eastern question. A vast circle of tales and poems has gathered round this mythical event. In the Iliad, Song of Ilium, or Troy, is still a poem of unfailing interest and fascination. Ilium, or Troy, was a city of Asia Minor, a little south of the Hellespont. It was the center of a powerful state, Grecian in race and language, and when Paris, son of King Priam, visited Sparta and carried off the beautiful wife of Menelaus, king of Sparta, all the heroes of Greece banded together and invaded Priam's dominions. The twelve hundred ships that sailed for Troy transported one hundred thousand warriors to the valley of Samoy and Scamander. Among them was Agamemnon, king of men, brother of Menelaus. He was the leader, and in his train were Achilles, swift of foot, godlike, wise, Ulysses, king of Ithaca, the two Ajaxes, and the aged Nestor. The narrative of their adventures is told in the Homeric poems with a power of musical expression, a charm of language, and a vividness of imagery unsurpassed in poetry. For ten years the besiegers encircled the city of Priam. After many engagements and single combats on the windy plain of Troy, the great hero of the Greeks, Achilles of Thessaly, is wronged by Agamemnon, who carries away Briseis, a fair captive girl allotted as the spoils of war to the swift-footed. The hero of Thessaly thenceforth refuses to join in the war and sullenly shuts himself up in his tent. It is only when his dear friend Patroclus has been slain by the valiant Hector, eldest son of Priam, that he sallies forth, meets Hector in single combat, and finally slays him. Achilles then attaches the body of Hector to his chariot and insultingly trails it in the dust as he drives three times around the walls of Troy. The Iliad closes with the funeral rites celebrated over the corpse of Hector. We now arrive at the capital and culminating point of the Grecian epic, the two sieges and captures of Troy, with the destinies of the dispersed heroes, Trojan as well as Grecian, after the second and most celebrated capture and destruction of the city. It would require a large volume to convey any tolerable idea of the vast extent and expansion of this interesting fable, first handled by so many poets, epic, lyric, and tragic, with their endless additions, transformations, and contradictions, then purged and recast by historical inquirers, who, under color of setting aside the exaggerations of the poets, introduced a new vein of prosaic invention, 
lastly moralized and allegorized by philosophers. In the present brief outline of the general field of Grecian legend, or of that which the Greeks believed to be their antiquities, the Trojan War can be regarded as only one among a large number of incidents upon which Hecadius and Herodotus looked back as constituting their foretime. Taken as a special legendary event, it is, indeed, of wider and larger interest than any other, but it is a mistake to single it out from the rest as if it rested upon a different and more trustworthy bias. I must, therefore, confine myself to an abridged narrative of the current and leading facts, and amid the numerous contradictory statements which are to be found respecting every one of them, I know no better ground of preference than comparative antiquity, though even the oldest tales which we possess, those contained in the Iliad, evidently presuppose others of a prior date. The primitive ancestor of the Trojan line of kings is Dardanus, son of Zeus, founder and eponymus of Dardania. In the account of later authors, Dardanus was called the son of Zeus by Electra, daughter of Atlas, and was further said to have come from Samothrace, or from Arcadia, or from Italy. But of this Homer mentions nothing. The first Dardanian town founded by him was in a lofty position on the descent of Mount Ida, for he was not yet strong enough to establish himself on the plain. But soon his son, Erichthonius, by the favor of Zeus, became the wealthiest of all mankind. His flocks and herds having multiplied, he had in his pastures three thousand mares, the offspring of some of whom, by Boreas, produced horses of preternatural swiftness. Tros, the son of Erichthonius, and the eponym of the Trojans, had three sons, Ilus, Assarachus, and the beautiful Ganymedes, whom Zeus stole away to become his cupbearer in Olympus, giving his father Tros, as the price of the youth, a team of immortal horses. From Ilus and Assarachus the Trojan and Dardanian lines diverge, the former passing from Ilus to Laomedon, Priam and Hector, the latter from Assarachus to Capias, Anchises and Aeneas. Ilus founded in the plain of Troy the holy city of Ilium. Assarachus and his descendants remained sovereigns of Dardania. It was under the proud Laomedon, son of Ilus, that Poisidon and Apollo underwent, by command of Zeus, a temporary servitude the former building the walls of the town, the latter tending the flocks and herds. When their task was completed, and the penal period had expired, they claimed the stipulated reward. But Laomedon angrily repudiated their demand, and even threatened to cut off their ears, to tie them hand and foot, and to sell them in some distant island as slaves. He was punished for this treachery by a sea monster, whom Poisidon sent to ravage his fields and destroy his subjects. Laomedon publicly offered the immortal horses given by Zeus to his father Tros as a reward to anyone who would destroy the monster. But an oracle declared that a virgin of noble blood must be surrendered to him, and the lot fell upon Hesuin, daughter of Laomedon himself. Heracles, arriving at this critical moment, killed the monster by the aid of a fort built for him by Athene and the Trojans, so as to rescue both the exposed maiden and the people. But Laomedon, by a second act of perfidy, gave him mortal horses in place of the matchless animals which had been promised. Thus defrauded of his due, 
Heracles equipped six ships, attacked and captured Troy, and killed Laomedon, giving Hesawin to his friend and auxiliary Telamon, to whom she bore the celebrated archer Teocros. A painful sense of this expedition was preserved among the inhabitants of the historical town of Ilium, who offered no warship to Heracles. Among all the sons of Laomedon, Priam was the only one who had remonstrated against the refusal of the well-earned guerdon of Heracles, for which the hero recompensed him by placing him on the throne. Many and distinguished were his sons and daughters, as well by his wife Hecuba, daughter of Sisius, as by other women. Among the sons were Hector, Paris, Diophobus, Helenus, Troilus, Polites, Polydorus, among the daughters, Laodice, Creusa, Polyxena, and Cassandra. The birth of Paris was preceded by formidable presage, for Hecuba dreamed that she was delivered of a firebrand, and Priam, on consulting the soothsayers, was informed that the son about to be born would prove fatal to him. Accordingly, he directed the child to be exposed on Mount Ida. But the inauspicious kindness of the gods preserved him and he grew up amid the flocks and herds, active and beautiful, fair of hair and symmetrical in person, and the special favorite of Aphrodite. It was to this youth, in his solitary shepherd's walk on Mount Ida, that the three goddesses, Hiri, Athene, and Aphrodite, were conducted in order that he might determine the dispute respecting their comparative beauty which had arisen at the nuptials of Peleus and Thetis a dispute brought about in pursuance of the arrangement and in accomplishment of the deep-laid designs of Zeus. For Zeus, remarking with pain the immoderate numbers of the then-existing heroic race, pitied the earth for the overwhelming burden which she was compelled to bear, and determined to lighten it by exciting a destructive and long-continued war. Paris awarded the palm of beauty to Aphrodite, who promised him in recompense the possession of Helen, wife of the Spartan Menelaus, the daughters of Zeus and the fairest of living women. At the instance of Aphrodite, ships were built for him, and he embarked on the enterprise so fraught with the eventual disaster to his native city, in spite of the menacing prophecies of his brother Helenus and the always neglected warnings of Cassandra. Paris, on arriving at Sparta, was hospitably entertained by Menelaus as well as by Castor and Pollux, and was enabled to present the rich gifts which he had brought to Helen. Menelaus then departed to Crete, leaving Helen to entertain his Trojan guest, a favorable moment which was employed by Aphrodite to bring about the intrigue and the elopement. Paris carried away with him both Helen and a large sum of money belonging to Menelaus, made a prosperous voyage to Troy, and arrived there safely with his prize on the third day. Menelaus, informed by Iris and Crete of the perfidious return made by Paris for his hospitality, hastened home in grief and indignation to consult with his brother Agamemnon, as well as with the venerable Nestor, on the means of avenging the outrage. They made known the event to the Greek chiefs around them, among whom they found universal sympathy. Nestor, Palamedes, and others went round to solicit aid in a contemplated attack of Troy, under the command of Agamemnon, to whom each chief promised both obedience and unwearied exertion until Helen should be recovered. Ten years were spent in equipping the expedition. 
the goddess Hiri and Athene, incensed at the preference given by Paris to Aphrodite, and animated by steady attachment to Argos, Sparta, and Mycenae, took an active part in the cause, and the horses of Hiri were fatigued with their repeated visits to different parts of Greece. By such efforts a force was at length assembled at Aeolus, in Boeotia, consisting of 1,186 ships and more than 100,000 men, a force outnumbering by more than ten to one anything that the Trojans themselves could oppose, and superior to the defenders of Troy even with all her allies included. It comprised heroes with their followers from the extreme points of Greece, from the northwestern portions of Thessaly under Mount Olympus, as well as the western islands of Dulucium and Ithaca, and the eastern islands of Crete and Rhodes. Agamemnon himself contributed one hundred ships manned with the subjects of his kingdom Mycenae, besides furnishing sixty ships to the Arcadians, who possessed none of their own. Menelaus brought with him sixty ships. Nestor from Pylos, ninety, Idomeneus from Crete, and Diomedes from Argos, eighty each. Forty ships were manned by the Elians under four different chiefs, the like number under Meges from Dulucium and the Echinades, and under Thous from Caledon and the other Aetolian towns. Odysseus from Ithaca and Ajax from Salamis brought twelve ships each, the Abantes from Euboea, under Elphinor, filled forty vessels, the Boeotians under Penelos and Leitus, the inhabitants of Orchomenus and Aspledon, thirty, the light-armed Locrations under Ajax son of Oilus, forty, the Phoenicians as many, the Athenians under Menestheus, a chief distinguished for his skill in marshalling an army, mustered fifty ships, the Myrmidons from Phthia, and Hellas, under Achilles, assembled in fifty ships, Protocilius from Phlace and Pyrrhus, and Eurypleus from Orminium, each came with forty ships, Machaon, and Podalarius from Tricca, with thirty, Emulus from Ferry, and the Lake Boebus, with eleven, and Philoctetes from Meliboea, with seven. The Lipitae, under Polypodes, son of Pyrrhus, filled forty vessels, the Aenes and Parabians under Genius, twenty-two, and the Magnetis under Prothus, forty. These last two were from the northernmost parts of Thessaly, near the mountains Pelion and Olympus. Semi, under the comely but effeminate Nereus, three. From Kaz, Crapathus, and the neighboring islands, thirty, under the orders of Phidippus and Antiphus sons of Thessalus and grandsons of Heracles. Among this band of heroes were included the distinguished warriors Ajax and Diomedes, and the sagacious Nestor, while Agamemnon himself, scarcely inferior to either of them in prowess, brought with him a high reputation for prudence and command. But the most marked and conspicuous of all were Achilles and Odysseus. The former, a beautiful youth born of a divine mother, swift in the race, of fierce temper and irresistible might, the latter, not less efficient as an ally, from his eloquence, his untiring endurance, his inexhaustible resources under difficulty, and the mixture of daring courage with deep-laid cunning which never deserted him. The blood of the arch-deceiver Sisyphus, through an illicit connection with his mother, was said to flow in his veins, and he was especially patronized and protected by the goddess Athene. 
Odysseus, unwilling at first to take part in the expedition, had even simulated insanity. But Palamedes, sent to Ithaca to invite him, tested the reality of his madness by placing in the furrow where Odysseus was plowing his infant son Telemachus. Thus detected, Odysseus could not refuse to join the Achaean host, but the prophet Halitherses predicted to him that twenty years would elapse before he revisited his native land. To Achilles the gods had promised the full effulgence of heroic glory before the walls of Troy nor could the place be taken without both his cooperation and that of his son after him. But they had forewarned him that this brilliant career would be rapidly brought to a close, and that if he desired a long life, he must remain tranquil and inglorious in his native land. In spite of the reluctance of his mother Thetis, he preferred few years with the bright renown, and joined the Achaean host. When Nestor and Odysseus came to Phthia to invite him, both he and his intimate friend Patroclus eagerly obeyed the call. Agamemnon and his powerful host set sail from Aeolus, but being ignorant of the locality and the direction, they landed by mistake in Teuthrania, a part of Mycia near the river Caicus, and began to ravage the country under the persuasion that it was the neighborhood of Troy. Telephus, the king of the country, opposed and repelled them, but he was ultimately defeated and severely wounded by Achilles. The Greeks, now discovering their mistake, retired. But their fleet was dispersed by a storm and driven back to Greece. Achilles attacked and took Scyrus, and there married Didamia, the daughter of Lycomedes. Telephus, suffering from his wounds, was directed by the oracle to come to Greece and present himself to Achilles to be healed by applying the scrapings of the spear with which the wound had been given. Thus restored, he became the guide of the Greeks when they were prepared to renew their expedition. The armament was again assembled at Ilus, but the goddess Artemis, displeased with the boastful language of Agamemnon, prolonged the duration of adverse winds, and the offending chief was compelled to appease her by the well-known sacrifice of his daughter, Iphigenia. They then proceeded to Tenidas, from whence Odysseus and Menelaus were dispatched as envoys to Troy, to redemand Helen and the stolen property. In spite of the prudent counsels of Antenor, who received the two Grecian chiefs with friendly hospitality, the Trojans rejected the demand, and the attack was resolved upon. It was foredoomed by the gods that the Greek who first landed should perish. Protesilus was generous enough to put himself upon this forlorn hope, and accordingly fell by the hand of Hector. Meanwhile, the Trojans had assembled a large body of allies from various parts of Asia Minor and Thrace, Dardanians under Aeneas, Lycians under Sarpedon, Mycenaeans, Carians, Maeonians, Alizonians, Phrygians, Thracians, and Paeonians. But vain was the attempt to oppose the landing of the Greeks. The Trojans were routed, and even the invulnerable Syncus, son of Poisidon, one of the great bulwarks of the defense, was slain by Achilles. Having driven the Trojans within their walls, Achilles attacked and stormed Lyrnessus, Pedesus, Lesbos, and other places in the neighborhood, twelve towns on the sea coast and eleven in the interior. He drove off the oxen of Aeneas and pursued the hero himself, who narrowly escaped with his life. 
he surprised and killed the youthful Trialus, son of Priam, and captured several of the other sons, whom he sold as prisoners, into the islands of the Aegean. He acquired as his captive the fair Briseis, while Chryseis was awarded to Agamemnon. He was, moreover, eager to see the divine Helen, the prize and stimulus of this memorable struggle, and Aphrodite and Thetis contrived to bring about an interview between them. At this period of the war the Grecian army was deprived of Palamedes, one of its ablest chiefs. Odysseus had not forgiven the artifice by which Palamedes had detected his simulated insanity, nor was he without jealousy of a rival clever and cunning, in a degree equal, if not superior, to himself. One who had enriched the Greeks with the invention of letters of dice for amusement of night watches, as well as with other useful suggestions. According to the old Cyprian epic, Palamedes was drowned while fishing by the hands of Odysseus and Diomedes. Neither in the Iliad nor the Odyssey does the name of Palamedes occur. The lofty position which Odysseus occupies in both these poems, noticed with some degree of displeasure even by Pindar, who described Palamedes as the wiser man of the two, is sufficient to explain the omission. But in the more advanced period of the Greek mind, when intellectual superior came to acquire a higher place in the public esteem as compared with military prowess, the character of Palamedes, combined with his unhappy fate, rendered him one of the most interesting personages in the Trojan legend. Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides each consecrated to him a special tragedy. But the mode of his death as described in the old epic was not suitable to Athenian ideas, and accordingly he was represented as having been falsely accused of treason by Odysseus, who caused gold to be buried in his tent and persuaded Agamemnon and the Grecian chiefs that Palamedes had received it from the Trojans. He thus forfeited his life, a victim to the calumny of Odysseus and to the delusion of the leading Greeks. The philosopher Socrates, in the last speech made to his Athenian judges, alludes with solemnity and fellow feeling to the unjust condemnation of Palamedes, as analogous to that which he himself was about to suffer. And his companions seem to have dwelt with satisfaction on the comparison. Palamedes passed for an instance of the slanderous enmity and misfortune which so often wait upon superior genius. In these expeditions the Grecian army consumed nine years during which the subdued Trojans dared not give battle without their walls for fear of Achilles. Ten years was the fixed epical duration of the siege of Troy, just as five years was the duration of the siege of Comitius by the Cretan armament which came to avenge the death of Minos. Ten years of preparation, ten years of siege, and ten years of wandering for Odysseus were periods suited to the rough chronological dashes of the ancient epic, and suggesting no doubts nor difficulties with the original hearers. But it was otherwise when the same events came to be contemplated by the historizing Greeks, who could not be satisfied with either finding or inventing satisfactory bonds of coherence between the separate events. Thucydides tells us that the Greeks were less numerous than the poets have represented, and that being, moreover, very poor, they were unable to procure adequate and constant provisions. Hence, they were compelled to disperse their army, and to employ a part of it in cultivating the Chersonese, 
a part in marauding expeditions over the neighborhood. Could the whole army have been employed against Troy at once, he says, the siege would have been much more speedily and easily concluded. If the great historian could permit himself thus to amend the legend in so many points, we might have imagined that a simpler course would have been to include the duration of the siege among the list of poetical exaggerations, and to affirm that the real siege had lasted only one year instead of ten. But it seems that the ten years' duration was so capital a feature in the ancient tale that no critic ventured to meddle with it. A period of comparative intermission, however, was now at hand for the Trojans. The gods brought out the memorable fit of anger of Achilles, under the influence of which he refused to put on his armor and kept his Myrmidons in camp. According to the Cypria, this was the behest of Zeus, who had compassion on the Trojans. According to the Iliad, Apollo was the originating cause, from anxiety to avenge the injury which his priest Chryses had endured from Agamemnon. For a considerable time, the combats of the Greeks against Troy were conducted without their best warrior, and severe, indeed, was the humiliation which they underwent in consequence. How the remaining Grecian chiefs vainly strove to make amends for his absence, how Hector and the Trojans defeated and drove them to their ships, how the actual blaze of the destroying flame, applied by Hector to the ship of Protesilus, roused up the anxious and sympathizing Patroclus, and extorted a reluctant consent from Achilles to allow his friend and his followers to go forth and avert the last extremity of ruin. How Achilles, when Patroclus had been killed by Hector, forgetting his anger and grief for the death of his friend, re-entered the fight, drove the Trojans within their walls with immense slaughter, and satiated his revenge both upon the living and the dead Hector. All of these events have been chronicled, together with those divine dispensations on which most of them are made to depend, in the immortal verse of the Iliad. Homer breaks off with the burial of Hector whose body had just been ransomed by the disconsolate Priam, while the lost poem of Arctinus, entitled the Ethiopius, so far as we can judge from the argument still remaining of it, handled only the subsequent events of the siege. The poem of Quintus Smyrnius, composed about the fourth century of the Christian era, seems in its first books to coincide with the Ethiopis, in the subsequent books partly with the Ilias Minor of Leshes. The Trojans, dismayed by the death of Hector, were again animated with hope by the appearance of the warlike and beautiful queen of the Amazons. Penthelcelia, daughter of Ares, hitherto invincible in the field, who came to their assistance from Thrace at the head of a band of her countrywomen. She again led the besieged without the walls to encounter the Greeks in the open field, and under her auspices the latter were at first driven back until she, too, was slain by the invincible arm of Achilles. The victor, on taking off the helmet of his fair enemy as she lay on the ground, was profoundly affected and captivated by her charms, for which he was scornfully taunted by Thersites. Exasperated by this rash insult, he killed Thersites on the spot with a blow of his fist. A violent dispute among the Grecian chiefs was the result, for Diomedes, the kinsman of Thersites, warmly resented the proceeding and Achilles was obliged to go to Lesbos, where he was purified from the act of homicide by Odysseus. Next arrived Memnon, son of Tithonus and Eos, the most stately of living men, 
with a powerful band of black Ethiopians to the assistance of Troy. Sallying forth against the Greeks, he made great havoc among them. The brave and popular Antilochus perished by his hand, a victim to filial devotion in defense of Nestor. Achilles at length attacked him, and for a long time the combat was doubtful between them. The prowess of Achilles and the supplication of Thetis with Zeus finally prevailed, while Eos obtained for her vanquished son the consoling gift of immortality. His tomb, however, was shown near the Propontis, within a few miles of the mouth of the river Esopus, and was visited annually by the birds called Memnonides, who swept it and bedewed it with water from the stream. So the traveler Pausanias was told, even in the second century after the Christian era, by the Hellespontine Greeks. But the fate of Achilles himself was now at hand. After routing the Trojans and chasing them into town, he was slain near the Scaean Gate by an arrow from the quiver of Paris, directed under the unerring auspices of Apollo. The greatest efforts were made by the Trojans to possess themselves of the body, which was, however, rescued and borne off to the Grecian camp by the valor of Ajax and Odysseus. Bitter was the grief of Thetis for the loss of her son. She came into the camp with the Muses and the Nereids to mourn over him, and when a magnificent funeral pyre had been prepared by the Greeks to burn him with every mark of honor, she stole away the body and conveyed it to a renewed and immortal life in the island of Leuce in the Euxine Sea. According to some accounts, he was there blessed with the nuptials and company of Helen. Thetis celebrated splendid funeral games in the honor of her son, and offered the unrivaled panoply which Hephaestus had forged and wrought for him as a prize to the most distinguished warrior in the Grecian army. Odysseus and Ajax became rivals for the distinction, when Athene, together with some Trojan prisoners, who were asked from which of their two country had sustained greatest injury, decided in favor of the former. The gallant Ajax lost his senses with grief and humiliation. In a fit of frenzy he slew some sheep, mistaking them for men who had wronged him, and then fell upon his own sword. End of section 10